Psalm 49. That's our main passage uh, that we'll be focusing on this morning. Um, So we're going to read that first of all, and uh, then we're going to read Luke chapter 12 and uh, the parable of the rich fool. We're going to see that these two passages in the Bible are very clearly connected. I'm reading from the, from the church Bible. I use, uh, or we use in, in Leeds, the ESV regularly, but I'm preaching from the NIV on this occasion because it is blunt and clear in terms of the message that I believe the psalm uh, contains. But let's read uh, from Psalm 49, uh, beginning at verse 1 and reading the whole psalm. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of evil? when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees wise men die, Likewise, the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave for he shall receive me. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself, for men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in honor yet does not understand, is like the beasts that perish. And then turn over with those words in our thoughts to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 12, and we'll begin to read at verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? 
And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, it'll help you uh, if you have your Bible with you to have it open, uh, primarily in, in Psalm 49. And we'll be uh, meditating on that uh, in our time together now. But let's uh, pray together before we uh, come to God's Word. Father, we praise you and thank you for the gift of the Bible. We thank you that these are the words of life. We thank you that you speak by your Spirit through this Word. And we ask that as we gather now uh, under the authority of this Word, that our hearts might be open and receptive, that our ears may be open to hear what you're saying to us, and that by your Spirit you would give us grace to respond in ways that magnify and honor Jesus, our Redeemer and King. In his precious name we pray. Amen. It's very bad manners not to say thank you. We've recently been able to celebrate one of our grandchildren's third birthdays. And uh, at that particular gathering, he got a lot of presents from a lot of people. And uh, it was his parents' role, well, among many other things, to make sure that everyone received an appropriate thank you. So that as he opened each parcel, uh, he was filmed saying, thank you, auntie so-and-so, uncle so-and-so, for my gift. We recognize, don't we, that it's important to say thank you when someone gives us a gift. But sadly, very few people today ever stop to consider giving thanks to God for anything. Harvest Sunday today, we pause to consider God's goodness to us and to thank Him for His daily mercies. But even as those who proclaim to love the Lord Jesus Christ, we easily forget our complete dependence on God for everything. And we therefore need to be reminded at times such as this, that everything that we are as individuals, our personalities, our gifts, our talents, and everything that we have, our friendships, our families, our careers, our possessions, are all ours because God continues to be kind. Because God continues to be generous towards each and every one of us this morning. I recently heard of an old woman who sat down to every meal, and before she ate, she said, Much obliged, Lord. 
On one occasion, a young man shared a meal with her and she began in the usual way. And the young man asked her why she did this. And she said, well, my parents taught me that I ought to be thankful for everything. So every morning when I awake, I ask myself what I can thank God for. This morning, she said, I woke up and I couldn't think of anything. Then I began to smell the aroma of coffee brewing. And I thank God for coffee. And I thank God for the ability to smell coffee. And many years later, when that old woman was dying, that same young man, now older, was stood with others around her bedside. And as he stood there, he wondered what this woman might praise God for on this occasion. And just then, she opened her eyes and she said, Much obliged, Lord, for such fine friends. Now, one of our most familiar harvest hymns begins with an invitation to a certain kind of people, thankful people. So my question to you this morning is this. Do you class yourself as a thankful person? I'm not asking whether you have good manners. I'm not asking whether you say your pleases and your thank yous. But are you consciously grateful to God for everything he has given you in life? You know, when the Bible talks about the importance of fearing God, this is one of the areas that it's talking about. Living every day conscious that all that I am and all that I have is not because I deserve it, but simply by the gift and grace of a merciful God. Has it ever crossed your mind that the Apostle Paul was right? When he said, it is in him that we live and move and have our being. One of the reasons why so many fail to thank or appreciate God is because our society today is dominated by secularism, by materialism, by consumerism. The customer is king. And it doesn't really matter uh, where the product comes from. As long as it meets my expectations on price and quality, as long as it does what it says on the tin, then I'm happy. And that's the end of the story. But materialism is a menace. It is leading countless numbers of people astray, even Christians, because it gives a false sense of security a false sense of independence and ability that we think we can somehow live without God, without acknowledging Him, because we have all this stuff, all of these things upon which we rely. And generally speaking, where the desire to gather and pursue wealth and possessions and seek financial security dominates, there is no time for God. And there is no wish to acknowledge Him as the giver of every gift. While we were away in Borneo uh, over the last uh, month or so, we were able to visit a place called Temberong. And it's one of the areas of Borneo where there was a revival in the 1970s. Some of you may have heard of it, the Barrio Revival. And Karen and I were able to go with a couple of Christians. We drove a couple of hours into the interior we went to a kampong, which is a village, and we met there a man who was 100 years old. His name was Dawat. 
and uh, he was a member of the Lombawang tribe, or the Muruts, as they used to be known. And they had a reputation for drinking, for alcohol. They, it was said of the, the, the Muruts uh, that they were only sober for half the days of any year. And that included the children and the women and the men. Now, these folks were headhunters, and we had quite an interesting time with Dawat telling us how at the beginning of the Second World War, uh, Japan had invaded, and uh, he killed a Japanese soldier who had killed his ox. And then he had a bit of a taste of him. He ate him, or part of him. Because before he came to Christ, he was a headhunter. He was a cannibal. So you think about amazing before and after stories, this was it. But one of the things that struck us, we talked with them about uh, how life was for them now. Remember, in that part of the world, you are in a Muslim country. Sharia law is imposed. Yet these Christians and these churches are growing. The Holy Spirit is still working mightily in that part of the world. But as we began to learn more about the revival and its effects, and let's be honest, how many of us have prayed that God would revive the church in the United Kingdom? Have you prayed that prayer in some form? Well, in that case, in the 1970s, revival came in powerful ways. A generation later, young people were no longer following Jesus. Because they had moved out of the kampongs, they had moved away into the cities, and they had been bewitched by the pursuit of what? Wealth and the material dream. It is a danger. And even today in our country, uh, as the capitalist dream stutters and apparently crumbles, this time, this Harvest season gives us an opportunity to to rethink our attitudes to God and his provision and his many wonderful and varied gifts. And Psalm 49 is going to help us to do that because it is God's message to the materialist. It's God's message to our society, maybe God's message to you this morning. And it's very simple. You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. This psalm is one of the wisdom psalms. It is a commentary on the parable of the rich fool that we read in Luke chapter 12. You remember the story that Jesus told a man had enjoyed a bumper harvest. And he said to himself, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you've plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But of course, God says to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And then Jesus adds, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So Psalm 49, that is a commentary on this parable of the rich fool, is a parable, a story rather, about the emptiness of riches. And it's referred to as a wisdom psalm because it begins, you'll notice, like many of the Proverbs, with a call to wise people everywhere. Hear this, all you peoples, listen, all who live in this world, both low and high, rich and poor alike. So it's a message for everyone, without exception. 
in our world today. It's a message for all of us here this morning. And we need to listen to the Bible's wisdom, especially in this area of wealth and materialism. Most of us in the West, even those of us involved in full-time Christian work, are basically materialistic. And what I mean by that is that we tend to set our sights more on physical and visible things than on spiritual realities. Even pastors are inclined to trust more in their investments and their bank balances and what we can do with them rather than trusting in Jesus Christ to be our provider in every area of life. So this is a persistent and universal problem. And it's also why everybody's going nuts about the budget on Friday. Panic. The pound is plummeting. Well, that, that's a disaster if your God is what? Wealth. If your security is in your possessions or in your pension account or whatever it might be, that's a disaster. But it shouldn't be for those of us who are the children of God. It shouldn't be for the Christian. So this psalm I want to suggest tells us three things about the reality of life today that we really need to get our heads around. And the first one is this. Trusting in possessions is madness. Trusting in possessions is madness. Now, why is it madness? Why is it foolish for us to trust our wealth or possessions? Well, it's very simple, isn't it? Because these things can't save us from our greatest enemy. What is that? Death itself. See what the psalmist says in verse 7 and 8. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. The French philosopher Voltaire was a very rich man. He was a determined enemy of the Christian faith, and much of his writing was given over to attacking it. Yet when he came to die, he suffered a particularly long and painful death. And in his agony, he said to his doctor, I will give you half of everything I possess if you give me six months more of life. But of course, that was beyond the doctor's ability to do. And Voltaire's great wealth could not slow death's advance. And he died in utter despair. And the point that the psalmist wants us to grasp is this. It is only God, our creator, who can redeem a human being. Because only God is the giver and provider and sustainer of all and every life. So what we do, or what we may possess through life, can in the final analysis all be traced back to God's grace and to God's mercy to us. And the Bible is very clear, it is only a fool who trusts in riches and material wealth in order to prepare them for death. The size of your bank balance doesn't impress God. That's why the disciples on one occasion were so concerned when they heard Jesus say, you know, guys, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were utterly stunned. Why? 
because they thought that if you were on the rich list, you were going to be in the kingdom. And Jesus was saying, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not interested in your bank balance. I'm not interested in your riches. Now, in case you're here and you're thinking, Wes, you don't know me. I'm definitely not on the rich list. I don't think any of us are in the building. If you are, I'm sure Bernard is the treasurer. would like to hear from you afterwards. But, but, you know, you may be here and you think, well, hang on a minute, Wes, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not rich, so there's no danger of me being dependent on money or possessions. Ever thought like that? Well, think again. Look at verse 13. The psalmist also challenges those who are followers of the materialist dream, those who approve of the pursuit of wealth. You see, you're in that category of foolish people if you follow the rich, if you aspire to be like them, if you approve of their philosophy of life. Isn't that why there's so much interest in the lives of the rich and famous in our day? Isn't that why every time you turn up at Morrison's supermarket checkout, there's always these magazines telling you what Paris Hilton is doing about recovering her lost dog? You've seen that? You know? Yeah, I, I, yeah. well, she got this wee dog that's been kidnapped or something, and she's put an award up for $10,000 or £10,000 for this wee dog, which it's like, it's like a rat, really. It's, it's, for those of us who are real dog lovers, it, you know, it, it doesn't qualify. It's too small. But we, we are fascinated with these things. It's on the entertainment news. And here, the, the, the writer of the psalm says, that is, that is part of the folly of the world. We're sucked into this, uh, th- this mindset that we effectively support the philosophy of the extremely wealthy. If, if you like, we're standing on the sidelines longing to be involved, longing to get a part of the action and be in that group of people. Now, it's important to say that the Bible teaches that wealth in and of itself is not wrong. Many of the characters that we read of throughout the Scripture were immensely wealthy, Abraham being one, uh, for example. But it also warns us that the pursuit of wealth and material things, while at the same time ignoring God who made us and gave all those things, will lead us to eternal loss the separation from God in the next life. Now, the Bible describes God as a jealous God. And that doesn't mean a a sinful jealousy as as, as we would be jealous of something or someone. It, It means that God has a high regard for his own worth, for his own holiness, such that it offends God when those who are created to worship him worship stuff, and other things instead. Worship the gift, if you like, rather than the giver. And that is the society in which we live. David Foster Wallace, writing in The Guardian several years ago, put it like this. He said, there is no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. But all this focus on gathering and investing and accumulating our wealth for a rainy day has to be kept in proper perspective because there's a second thing that we need to note here in the psalm, and it's this. 
dodging death is impossible. Many people today live as if they were invincible. The death is something that happens to other people. But look at verse 10 of Psalm 49. For all can see that the wise die, that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. What's the point? Well, the point is that death is inevitable. And when it comes, we've got to leave everything behind us. We all know, don't we, there are no pockets in a shroud. And the truth, when we hear it in that way, is so obvious that we can all see it, but somehow it fails to connect with our hearts. It fails to affect the way that we think and live in our daily lives. And death is one of the taboo subjects that people don't want to face. But the Bible is relentless in insisting on our mortality. Look at verse 12. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. You're not going to live forever. They are like beasts that perish. And we need to understand what's being said there. Despite the fact that we are above the animals in creation, we're not beasts on the same level as a lion or an elephant or whatever. We are created alone of all God's creation to bear his image. Nonetheless, like an elephant or a kangaroo or whatever, one day we're going to die. They die, we die. That's the point that's being made. So it's important that we make wise use of our time. And invest wisely, not in material things, but in spiritual things. In a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that leads to the third thing I think the psalm teaches us. And it's this. Redemption is a gift. The psalm deliberately contrasts the future of the fool who trusts in wealth and in stuff. And the wise person who trusts in God. And for those who acknowledge God as their maker and sustainer, there's a wonderful promise. It's there in verse 15. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. So as as David looks around him, as he sees everything that's going on, this pursuit of wealth and, 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 and neglect of God, he has this assurance. Because I am relying on God, he will redeem me from the realm of the dead. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that those who trust in, uh, in God through Jesus won't die. We do physically die. It is a consequence of the fall. Death is the judgment of God upon human sin following the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. But what it does mean that instead of us being lost eternally, we will enjoy God's presence eternally. If you like, our eternal destiny, where we end up when we die, depends on getting our priorities right here and now. So the psalm describes two groups of people. The foolish who ignore God and trust in anything but God, and the wise who trust in God in and with everything. And the stakes are high. Because the foolish will perish eternally. And the wise will live with God forever. But you know what? It's not enough for us in response to this to think, well, okay, I need to be less materialistic. I think it might be worth reflecting on that. 
Can I be less uh, driven to have the next iPhone that's available? You know, you get that, don't you? Uh, constantly offered the upgrade for the next thing. Can, can, I, can I separate myself from that? I think that would be a wise thing to do if you wanted to be faithful to God and, uh, and faithful to, uh, to living in this world for him. But, you know, that desire to be less materialistic, although important, doesn't really work because, you know, God doesn't accept us simply because we're poor or simply because we are generously lavish with the things that we have. Now, the psalm makes it clear that entering God's kingdom isn't achieved through our efforts. It's not about what we can pay to God. No, it is God and God alone who redeems us. Now, how does he do that? Well, he doesn't assess or measure our wealth. None of us can be rich enough to earn a place in God's kingdom. He doesn't assess our gifts and abilities, our personal efforts to live a better life and then reward us with a place in his kingdom. That's not how it works. There is only one way to be counted among the people of God. Listen to the Apostle Peter as he writes uh, to, to, to wise and God-fearing people. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. This is what he says. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Interesting, the use of language there, isn't it? If I'm driven to pursue wealth and material things, it is an, ultimately an empty way of life. I'm going back to the old ways, turning my back on Jesus who redeemed me at the cost of his blood. And we know, don't we, that redeem is a, a commercial term. It means to buy, it means to buy back or to buy out. Uh, perhaps in, in the case of, of slavery, someone who is enslaved, we buy them out of captivity. And spiritually, it refers to God, God's work in, in buying us out of sin's slave market and setting us free through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. So who is it that can redeem me? Who is it that can redeem you? No one but God. No one but Jesus. Only God can pay the ransom for the soul of a man or woman, a boy or girl, you here this morning. And we can praise the Lord that that is exactly what he does. He redeems the lives of all those who trust in him rather than in material things, rather than in other gods. Look at verse 15. But God will redeem me. That is the assurance. I'm trusting in him. So when death comes to us, we leave this world either with God through Jesus or with absolutely nothing. That's the choice. Someone uh, put it like this. Money is that something which buys everything but happiness and takes a man everywhere but heaven. Worth hearing again. Money is that something which buys everything but happiness and takes a man everywhere but heaven. So let me ask you this morning. Do you trust in Jesus Christ as your Redeemer? Or are you trusting in wealth, in possessions, 
in something else. Your education, your accomplishments, your achievements. The list is endless. But as we've seen, there's only one way to be truly redeemed. There's only one way to enter the kingdom of God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. And I would suggest to you, today is the day for you to sort out your priorities. Because despite what you think, you won't be in the right frame of mind when you're dying. You know, countless people, it seems, I remember this when I was growing up, used to think, well, I'm I'm young. I mean, I'm still young. I'm only 58. But you've got this mindset that sort of says, well, I'm young. I've got lots of life ahead of me. And I've heard the gospel, and I know I need to trust in Jesus, but I'm going to wait until just before I die. As if life's going to be better if you live all of it without Jesus and just, you know, get him at the end. That, you know, if you're, if you're falling for that nonsense, that's a lie of the devil, right? But so many people seem to think, when I come to die, that will be the time for me to think about these things. Have you ever been with someone when they've died? Some of us have been there, haven't we? at a bedside, alongside them. And some of us have longed that they would open their eyes long enough for us to be able to pray with them, to assure them, or for us to be assured that they're trusting Jesus in this moment as they pass over death's divide. But it rarely happens, does it? I'm reminded of a pastor who was called to visit an elderly man who was close to dying. And this man had a reputation for being a wealthy miser. The minister went and he spoke with him about the needs of his soul and eternal matters. Uh, And as he came to a conclusion, he asked him if he could hold his hand and pray with him. And the old man refused to do so. Now at that point, the pastor said to him, well, what is it that you're trusting to get you into heaven? And the old man confessed to him, that underneath the bedclothes, his hands were firmly clutching the keys to his safe. He feared that his money would be taken from him when he died, and therefore he refused to take the minister's hand. He refused to pray with him. I would urge you, with all that I am, not to fall into the materialist trap And I see so many people doing it. Don't build your life on dodgy foundations. Today is a day for giving thanks, for acknowledging God's goodness. Well, do that. Acknowledge God's grace to you and his goodness to you on this harvest day. Especially, not because of the material things he's blessed you with, but especially because he sent his son Jesus to redeem you to pay that unpayable cost that is beyond all of us so that we might have our sins forgiven, our debt erased, and be accepted into God's kingdom so that he might have the glory and not us. So are you trusting Jesus? I would urge you to do so. And I would say with some confidence based on the wisdom of Scripture that if you're living any other way, you're a fool. And I'm not saying that because I want to be nasty to you. 
I love you, I want to be nice to you, and I want you to like me. But the Bible says you're a fool if you're relying on anything else. So there's a challenge, isn't it, for those of us who are Christians. When the heat is on, when the pressure comes in day-to-day life, and I'm as guilty of this as the next person, what is my first instinct? To seek solace and help in stuff? Or to turn to Jesus and seek his face and his blessing and his help? Let's pray together as we come to an end. Father, we praise you and thank you for the clarity of your word. We recognize, Lord, that this is a a message that uh, needs to be heard very clearly by so many in our uh, society today. But we also recognize the corrosive effects of materialism in our own hearts and our own lives. And Lord, we pray that on this day when we give you thanks for all your rich bounty toward us, that you would help us to focus our attention on building treasure in heaven, on pursuing spiritual things and the things of the Spirit and living for your glory and seeking Jesus first and leaving everything else in your hands. Please, Lord, work in our hearts by your Spirit. Apply your word where it needs to be applied to each one of us and help us, Lord, to be those who live for your glory and delight in your Son. In his precious name we pray these things. Amen.